0: Welcome to another Dirty Debrief. Before we begin, I have to do that podcaster thing that I keep forgetting to do, which is to say, please give the podcast five stars on whatever app you use, share it on social media, follow the show on Instagram. There are literally millions of podcasts, so it's pretty hard for people to just stumble across a podcast like this. First off, a correction from the scene two episode that my friend Thuja pointed out to me. I used the word slave instead of enslaved. And I'd never heard this distinction before, but it was one of those things as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because enslaved emphasizes a condition being imposed on somebody rather than something that's like inherent to a person's identity. But from looking around online a bit, it does seem like there's some debate between black scholars about whether this is a worthwhile endeavor. And personally, when something like this comes up, and it's about a group I'm not a part of, I'm just going to go with the most sensitive version. And yeah, language like this can change, it does change over time, and so you can only be open to being corrected. And really, it's not a hardship for me to just switch a word like this. Speaking of my dear friend Thuja, we were working together at a cafe and started chatting about the last episode of Butt Out Baby. And Thuja, who has a master's in linguistics, mentioned that the comparison in the episode of language acquisition to dance was not accurate. And that led us into a whole discussion about using science in a persuasive argument. And I was like, damn, we really need to share this on the podcast. So, Duja explained to me how responsible science is actually very concerned with only making conclusions based on data-driven evidence, and that widespread practice of throwing in casual scientific claims to prop up an argument is actually harmful.
1: The larger-scale harm is that people without knowledge without understanding of certain topics by juxtaposing one claim next to those it can lead to misinformation and if you do that often enough it can make it seem like all science sounding claims are actually science just because you make a claim and then talk about a study right after it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever claim you made is um, supported by the study that you referenced and if it seems like people are doing that all the time, it just it gets very confusing. And it can seem like all claims um, are created equal. And I think the other thing that starts to happen is when people speak with a lot of certainty, there is also people are more likely to believe it. However, because a lot of people don't haven't engaged in science, the creation of science, They don't necessarily understand that it's a very cautious process, that people are only speaking from the results of their analysis. They're only speaking from, you know, if they're doing it well, from like what the data has shown them. And they, if they're good scientists, are trying not to speak outside of that because they don't have the authority to do so. And that can sound like people being unsure that can sound like hesitancy and then there can be a tendency for people because of the emotional appeal of speaking with a lot of um, authority they can be more swayed by those arguments rather than the ones that are actually informed by principled science
0: so i feel like that was really good description of the one part and then the other part that i feel that's a little bit more lighthearted is like when
1: i just wanted to make sure. a point about this for you since maybe this will be on the dirty debrief is i think that there's also an onus on media creators, on people in journalism, on people in podcasts to note when this is happening and then to, to ask for other references. Because if someone's bringing up some sort of science to know where it comes from, to know exactly how it's related to their claim, and then if that chain, if that connection isn't made clear, to not to not include it.
0: said before on this podcast, I don't consider it journalism because it's not being fact-checked in a traditional way. But of course, that does not absolve me from making sure that what I put out there is accurate and of course transparent, which is what I'm trying to do with these debriefs. Also, if you're ever like, wow, you must be really open and humble about your work to always have your friends interjecting with critiques. I am going to guess if my friends had to pick five words to describe me, I highly doubt those two would be on there, but I will share with you my evolution about having a greater ease with critical feedback in case it is useful to anyone listening. One is just simply I've found it easier the longer I work on creative projects. It doesn't feel as high stakes as when I was new, but I would say that's only a small part A big turning point for me was when I started pursuing writing as well as podcasting, specifically writing kids' cartoons. I was very interested in the craft of writing kids' cartoons, but I didn't really have an ego wrapped up in it in a way I did in my early years of podcasting. So if your art or craft feels like life or death stakes and you don't know how to change that, maybe try learning another craft that doesn't feel so friggin' personal. If you're like me, it'll help you loosen your grip just on all your creative work. But also with Butt Out Baby in particular, I definitely shield myself by calling it a hobby podcast. So if I screw up, it's easy for me to be like, well, I never set out to make a prestige podcast. Also, that part of the podcast itself is the honesty about making a podcast. So I have a couple... Crucial escape hatches from feeling like a failure when I make a mistake on this podcast. That being said, if I'm caught in the wrong mood, I can of course still get defensive about critiques. All right, speaking of critiques, in this case a self critique, let us discuss my interview skills for the Scene 3 episode. I've recorded many interviews over the years and I fancy myself to be pretty good at it. However, The vast majority of my professional experience of interviewing people, my voice is always cut out of the final product, which is pretty common for producers, I think. And you can see this also in video documentary with talking heads. It's pretty rare that we actually see the producer who's facing the subject and asking the questions that prompt the explanations that end up in the documentary. It's an interesting part of the craft that's mostly invisible to the viewer or listener. I know I mentioned the Up series on the podcast before, that British documentary series that followed a group of children in seven-year increments, and I think that was one of the first documentaries I saw where it was made clear to the viewer that a producer was behind the camera asking questions. I believe this evolved over time as the producer had a growing relationship with the subjects, and they sometimes challenged him on camera, and they left that as part of the story. When you know the questions will be cut, you have to be really focused on what the interviewee is saying and how they're saying it, and learn techniques to elicit descriptive answers. One technique that I learned from Pasint Metar, who was a longtime producer at CBC's The Current, was to ask people what image comes to mind when you think about that time in your life. Though now that I'm recalling that, I have not asked that question so long, I need to remember to ask it. But obviously it's a really good one for podcasting. Another two that I like to ask that I learned from a seminar on oral histories is asking, how do you think your experience was typical or not of the time in order to elicit a more broad reflection, or if someone's already good at that and I need them to get more granular, there's the good old, can you give me an example? And then the ever important follow-up question, how did that make you feel? Doing this kind of invisible interviewing also means, though, that you can hide from the audience that you're kind of acting like a director. And I'll play you a really short clip from an interview I did with my mom for that 99% Invisible story about girls basketball in Iowa. And it was a re-record where I wanted to get my mom to explain a yearbook photo. Just tell, tell me what we're looking at. Okay. Do you want me to do any intro or like say my name or any or did I do that already? No, just remember, I'm. It, this is my job. It's not your job to, like, figure out the framing of things. Okay, okay, say. okay, all right. Um, so, yeah, just what are we looking at? Make sure you say the year. Make sure what? You say the year. Yeah. I feel like I sound a little bit mean listening back to that, but in my head I was trying to reassure her that I was essentially the director in this scenario and she didn't need to worry about how she was saying something. If you are interested in the craft of podcasting, you probably already know about the website transom.org, and there's a clip on there that has stuck in my mind for years. It's by Ira Glass, host of This American Life, and it's embedded within a much longer written piece um, where he's walking readers through how he tells stories, and there's a part where he talks about a specific episode of This American Life. And it's about Adam Davidson, a contributor to the show at the time who, when he was 16, he wrote in his diary with real conviction that he would definitely someday become the Prime Minister of Israel. And in the written piece on Transom, Ira Glass explains how he tries to draw the big ideas out of interviews like this, which is Very the style of the show in particular, but also since This American Life has been so influential on narrative podcasts in general, I feel like it's very common. It's like plot, 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 big idea, and then repeat. So Ira wants to get Adam Davidson basically to say something profound and unexpected about the human condition in relationship to this story. And in the transom piece, he provides the clip that made the final podcast, Which is, Ira asks Adam, how does he think his 16-year-old self would feel if he saw him now at 30? And Adam begins by saying a heartfelt, I think he'd be really disappointed. But the part I really want to talk about, the part that's stuck in my mind for years, is where Ira talks about all the questions he had to ask before getting to the revelation that they ended up using in the final show. These are his words. But to get that nice answer on tape, to get so lucky, I had to try dozens of different things during the interview. I threw out all sorts of half-baked questions and speculations and proddings. And then embedded in the piece is a mix he made of all these questions, which you can listen to. I'll link in the show notes. There's lots of just variations on the same question, but my favorite part is when Ira tries an angle of talking about himself as a way to elicit a response and he's like speaking for myself I am an assimilationist Jew uh, so you know and basically this is the style of interview I'm used to doing so I have little worry what I sound like because it's all about getting the best version of the interviewee's stories and thoughts out of them so it doesn't matter if I sound stuttery And inarticulate or overexcited because it's all gonna get cut in the same way all of those questions that Ira said got cut. But with the scene three episode of Butt Out Baby, that was not going to be the case. And I don't think I quite wrapped my mind around that. I've mentioned this before, but it's somewhat rare for me to be articulate off the cuff unless it's a topic I've already thought about and written about. And so responding to people's comments live in a coherent way is a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for most people, but I think if you're trained as a host or a performer, it's a bit more ingrained in you than certainly the types of interviews I'm used to doing. Plus, Maria and I had a specific background, which we alluded to in the episode, and I can hear that I want to impress her a little bit. And the problem with this can be, as an interviewer, is you stop paying close attention to what the other person is saying, because while they're talking, you're quickly trying to scramble and draft something smart in your head. And this used to happen to me all the time when I co-hosted a feminist show at a community radio station, so it was all live, and I tried to see what archives I could still find to see if I could find an example of this, and boy, did I... So this is from 2009. I was interviewing a scholar and activist named Itras Syed, and I had approached her to come on the show because I wanted to talk about Muslim feminism. And in our pre-interview, we were talking on the phone, and she was like, okay, I'm a little confused. Like, what exactly did you want to talk about? And I was like, you know, like women in Islam. And I will probably forever remember what she said as a response to this because she was like, That's like saying to me, you want to do an interview about pants. Like, what about pants? And yes, if you are a trained journalist and or intersectional feminist, you're probably cringing. You don't just approach someone from a more marginalized group and be like, let's just like, you know, talk about your group. Anyway, she agreed to do the interview. Um, It turned out a couple of my other much more wiser co-hosts had a bit of a connection to her. So I think that led some legitimacy to the show. But needless to say, I was very nervous leading into the interview. I didn't want to sound as clueless as I already had. And you will hear me scramble to say something smart after Itras' thoughtful comment.
2: I think in the dominant feminist narrative, one of the things we can definitely see is that there's a role that Muslim women play in that narrative. Um, And many um, writers have talked about this. And the role is that we're, we're ground zero, we're the, we're the space against which white western women uh, measure the distance they've traveled mm-hmm. so we provide the foil in the feminist narrative and you can see this in like not just in popular culture but just generally beyond um, beyond that as well and, and so and for example in in the mobilization to war or when when issues come up around women's rights in Muslim majority societies, it very much forms part of that foil where white western uh, feminists can sort of take on the savior role,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, and, and sort of erase Muslim women's activism, Muslim women's discourse around a resistance to oppression or resistance to sexist practice. And so what happens then is that we've reformed that place where white Western women can um, construct themselves as the ones who have to go in, sweep in, um, and save Muslim women from themselves or from their culture, from their community, from their beliefs.
0: Okay yeah I I totally agree with that in ter- in terms of um uh some of the the western use as uh feminism as imper- imperialism in terms of like you said using the women from these countries and in terms of especially Afghanistan where the the so-called war on terror is ended up taking place in in Iraq um In terms of using it uh kind of as a tool to save these women rather from the ground up from there um in terms of feminists because feminists whether they uh, you know regard themselves as that or not do exist in these countries like uh you know like such groups as rawa um Mm -hmm. in terms of a really good example yeah i hope you didn't die from secondhand embarrassment the way i keep repeating in terms of in terms of reminds me of the sound that's popular on tiktok of a kid, like, shittily explaining his dream.
2: Have you ever had a dream that that you, um, you had, you, you, you could,
0: you do? But also shout out to Itras Sayed, who I feel like I can hear her trying to encourage me. <laughs> it's very sweet. And I don't share this to self-flagellate. I think it's fine to make mistakes and learn and grow. And as much as I noticed myself doing a much more subtle version of this with Mireya, I don't think it was an overly big deal, and I was able to edit a bunch. Which, speaking of editing interviews, one last note. At least all the podcasts that I've been involved in, there can be an incredible amount of editing that happens to a person's interview. And that on top of sometimes having interviewers like me and Ira Glass who are trying to probe big, thinky statements out of people... The way I've squared that ethically is that I feel like my goal is to help someone craft the clearest version of what they're trying to say, but really, that is a subjective call. And as I was prepping this episode, a new episode of um, the podcast All My Relations came out, which is hosted by two Indigenous writers and media creators, and they cover a whole manner of topics, but their most recent episode as of this recording, is titled Telling True Stories in a Good Way. And of course, I had to listen. The hosts open up the episode talking about how often they see stories extracted from native communities by non-native producers. And the word extracted really gave me chills. Because this is accurate as to how these dynamics can play out if you don't spend time thinking about your role and how much power you have as a producer, and why are you telling this story in the first place. All right, I am assuming we will return to some of these topics and later debriefs, but I will leave it at that for now. Next scene, we meet Johnny, and I have a couple amazing guests to help guide us through. Until next time.